So let's read Genesis 40 and verse 1. Uh, You might remember if you were here last week that Joseph is in prison. He's been cast into prison, having been wrongly accused of having an affair with Potiphar's wife. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed offence against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossom shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favourable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. As human beings, we've always longed to know the future. Right from the earliest times, there was money to be made in predicting people's fortune. Whether you go back to the ancient Greeks and the oracle at Delphi, who you could consult to let you know, at least in Uh, slightly kind of parabolic form, what was to happen in your life, Uh, right through to the horoscopes in today's papers. Uh, We long to know what's going to happen. I suspect most people don't fully believe that the the horoscopes are absolutely accurate, and yet they're still worth printing in the paper. Because people just long, they want to get a glimpse. Perhaps it might be true. The other end of the spectrum, I was talking to a friend uh, who works uh, down in London in the city, trading, that sort of thing. Uh, and he was telling me that uh, the computers they have are, are just a thousandth of a second 
slower than their rivals, and that's losing them business as their rivals' computer react to kind of international news and markets a thousandth of a second. And over the course of a day, he said, that makes millions of dollars of difference. Just being that much ahead. All the difference in the world. Wouldn't you like to know your future? Wouldn't you like to know what tomorrow's got in store? We might be quite relaxed about tomorrow. This week seems to be okay. But what about next year? What about 10 years' time? <coughs> and perhaps at the moment you feel like, Joseph, you're in the pit. Do you notice that's how he described it, his place? I've done nothing wrong, verse 16, but I'm in the pit. He's actually in prison. He's not in a literal pit. But, but he's using language that, that echoes the previous time he was literally in a pit, when his brothers chucked him in one to get rid of him. He's on another low, in other words. And again, it might be you. You might feel like you're kind of doing okay. You're trying to live for God. But actually, circumstances in your life feel like they've dropped you down into the pit again. And you wonder, will I ever get out again? Is this it? Am I always going to feel like this? Are they always going to treat me like that? Is work always going to be like this? We wonder about the future. Or perhaps you're on a high. You're not in the pit. You're on the mountaintops and everything is going swimmingly. Life is great. And just a little voice in the back of your head is saying, will it last? Will it last? You see, knowing the future gives us stability, doesn't it? Or security. If I could just know, then I'd be, well, I'd be more relaxed. I wouldn't be so anxious. I could just be easier. I would know my course. Uh, Joseph has had a pretty up and down life so far. His life, in many ways, is like a kind of W. He starts high. He's the favourite in the family. He's got the... The coat of many colours. His brothers do him in, chuck him in a pit, sell him into Egypt. But he does well again. His master Potiphar raised him up to be, to be top, top dog in the house, in charge of everything. But then last week we saw he was wrongly accused of having an affair with Potiphar's wife. So here he is, back low again. But even as our story starts, there's just a bit of a sign of an upturn. <coughs> in fact, let me just take you up a few verses before chapter 40 begins. Uh, to verse 20. Joseph's master took him, that's Potiphar, put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was in prison. But, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of the prisoners. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You see, even in the pit, even in the prison, God is still with Joseph and making everything he does sort of turn to gold. People talk about having the Midas touch, don't they? You know, the king from from mythology who could touch something and it becomes gold. Joseph has that Midas touch. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, that's not a promise to you and me. It's not that everything we do in life is going to work and succeed. Joseph has a particular role. In fact, Joseph's family are, are descended from that one man, Abraham who was the father of of God's people in the Old Testament. And Abraham was promised, well, many things. He was promised more descendants than there are stars in the sky or grains of sand on the beach. He was promised a particular land, the land that would become Israel, Canaan, as it's sometimes known. But one of the things that, that Abraham was promised was that he and his family, the Jewish nation, would become a blessing to others. So, so God wasn't just trying to bless that one people, the people of Israel. He wanted through them to bless the nations. And in many, that's what's happening here with Joseph. Joseph's in Egypt. Okay, there are a lot of people who believe in, in God. 
or not the same God as Joseph anyway. And yet through Joseph, first Potiphar's household, and now even the prison is being blessed. Little picture, by the way, of ultimately what Christ will do. Christ is a true Israelite. He's a true descendant of Abraham, his ultimate offspring. But through Christ and in Christ, the nations of the world are blessed. Joseph, a little mini picture. And in our story today, uh, although he's in prison and been raised up, that the camera switches to focus, first of all, on these two other characters, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Now, these guys aren't lowly servants. They're the head of their divisions, if you like. Uh, It's not literally the guy who's necessarily kneading the bread. Uh, He is the the one in charge of uh, the bakeries of Egypt. Apparently, so the archaeologists tell us, uh, they found all sorts of documents. Apparently, apparently the Egyptians were really into their bakery, okay, really into their croissants and their um, you know, pan au chocolat and all the rest of it. Probably not those two, literally. But um, someone's found this list of over 60 kind of different kind of bready cake things uh, that, that the Egyptians used to enjoy. And this guy is in charge of them for the pharaoh. Uh, and he and his friend, the butler, who's in charge of the wine, always important for kings. Uh, they both have dreams. Uh, they're both guilty, by the way. I should point that out, actually. Uh, sometimes we get the impression that Pharaoh is just being unfair and has just had a strop and thrown them into jail. But no, uh, in verse one, they both commit an offence against their lord, the king of Egypt. Both these men are guilty and therefore deserve to be in jail. But whilst they're there with Joseph looking after them, they have these dreams. And they're strange dreams, aren't they? Uh, in the first uh, dream, the cupbearer, Uh, He dreams of this vine, perhaps unsurprising for a butler. Uh, And the vine has three branches and really quickly it buds and blossoms and the clusters come. One, two, three. Everything happens in threes in this story, by the way, for a reason. Uh, It buds, it blossoms and it ripens. And so, well, the butler takes the grapes and again, a little three. uh, He he takes the cup and presses them into Pharaoh's cup and then puts the cup in Pharaoh's hand. One, two, three again. Three, three, three. And when Joseph hears this dream, it's good news, isn't it? Did you get that? It's good news. Uh, he says to, to the, the, uh, the chief steward, the chief butler, well, great news, you're going to be free. Okay, in three days, that's why all these threes, three branches, three actions, three days, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head and you'll be back at your place. And so understandably, the baker thinks, great, my dream sounds quite a lot like that. Here's mine, three baskets of bread, all sorts of baked goods, verse 17. Okay, there are all the dainties. Okay, patisserie, Valerie, eat your heart out. This is stacked full of, of uh, good snacks for Pharaoh, but the birds are eating out of the basket on my head. And you can imagine, as he listens to Joseph's interpretation, initially he's thinking, no, sounds good. Uh, Joseph's start is the same. This is the interpretation, the three baskets of three days. Good, thinks the baker. I like where this is going. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Just what he said to the butler. Great, thinks the baker. And then the punchline. Lift up your head from you. You're going to be executed and hung on a tree. And lo and behold, verse 20, on the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, or perhaps his anniversary of his coronation, it might not be literally his birthday, very likely that's his, his um, a bit like the queen, he gets an official birthday on the day he became king, became Pharaoh. He had a feast and lifted up the head of the cupbearer and lifted up the head of the chief baker each as Joseph interpreted. What's Joseph meant to learn? Okay, what are we meant to learn from this story? I mean, it's a, it's a 
kind of fun story, I suppose, unless you're the baker. It's an interesting story. But, but what's it doing in the Bible? Okay, what's it saying to Christians today? What's it saying, first of all, to Joseph? I'm going to suggest three things to you this morning. First of all, it's letting Joseph and us know that God is in complete control of history. God is in complete control of history. Okay, these dreams come three days before the events that they predict. And they predict exactly what's going to happen. Uh, there's nothing magic about Joseph. Uh, he himself says to the butler and the baker, verse 8, interpretations belong to God. Okay, so he knows that it's God who sent the dream and God who's given him the interpretation. The only way that God knows what's going to happen is because he is in control of what is going to happen. It's a big theme of the Joseph story. Uh, all along, it looks like things are happening by accident. In fact, very rarely is God's name mentioned in this whole stretch of the Joseph narrative. In that way, it's a bit like the book of Esther. Do you know the book of Esther where God's name isn't mentioned at all? This whole story. And there's no the Lord or God Almighty or Lord of hosts or anything like that. Silent on God's name. But the point is, God is working behind the scenes. He is the director, if you like, of the story. And it's the same with Joseph. It was no coincidence uh, that Joseph was sent out to find the brothers in the field far from home. It was no coincidence that just at the time the brothers beat him up and chucked him in a pit, the pit was empty. It should have been full of water, you might remember. But Joseph doesn't drown. He lives. It's no coincidence that the Ishmaelites are coming past and just happening to be going towards Egypt. It's no coincidence today uh, that Joseph ends up in jail with the butler and the baker. The butler ultimately being the one who's going to get him out of jail. All these little strands weaving together because God is shoving the pieces around the chessboard, as it were. It's the testimony of the whole of the Bible that it's not just that God can sort of see the future. Oh, I, I spot what's going to happen, so let, let me tell you. Hey, you might remember, I don't know if uh, those of you slightly younger remember when the National Lottery started. Every week there was this woman called Mystic Meg. Okay, who would predict what was going to happen, obviously ludicrously and accurately, uh, in the National Lottery. Uh, God is not some sort of cosmic Mystic Meg who's just good at looking down the tunnel of time, seeing what's going to happen, and then kind of jumping back into the present and reporting it. Uh, no, the reason God knows what's going to happen is because he's planned what is going to happen. I think of Paul's words in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.11, God works everything out according to the purpose of his will. According to the purpose of his will. So we're told that God is in charge of the natural world. Psalm 135, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from the storehouses. Or Matthew's gospel, Jesus preaching. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the sparrows, okay, these worthless little birds, are in God's control. He's got sovereignty over nature, over history. Paul preaches to the Athenians and says, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Okay, you study history at school, children, about the Romans and the Vikings and the ancient Britons and Henry VIII and all the rest of it. God was in control of that, telling that story. He's in control of what seem like random events in our lives. The Proverbs tell us that Proverbs 16 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You're rolling the dice in a game of Monopoly, and, and even that is under God's control. And perhaps most shockingly of all, he, he's in control even of our human decisions. 
Proverbs again, Proverbs 21 verse 1, says the king's heart is in the heart, hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Now the king was the, the mightiest of man, the, the man who was most free. Lots of people in, the, in uh, the days of the Old Testament in particular were slaves. Okay? They were in control of someone else. But the king was the only one who was free. He's top of the tree. He can do whatever he likes. And yet Proverbs, Proverbs says even his heart is in the hands of God. And God can direct it like he does the, the rivers, wherever he wants. For the rest of us, Proverbs is clear too. Proverbs 16, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, now none of this is meant to make us think we're robots. Okay? The Bible's really clear, we're responsible for how we live. Okay, we're not just puppets on a string being pulled left and right with, with sort of none of our own desires being enacted. But somehow, and it's mysterious, somehow God is able to create a world where we are both responsible for how we live and aren't robots, and yet at the same time, he is fully in control of it. Okay? He's not just looking down the tunnel of time and seeing or hoping to see or guessing what's going to happen. He knows. In fact, if you think about it, if he, even, if, even if you just wanted to say God knows exactly what's going to happen in the future... Okay, even if that's all you wanted to say, God knows certainly what's going to happen in the future, then still you're on the same hook, as it were. If he knows what's going to happen and he's right, then you're no less free, completely free, if you like, uh, than if he planned it. The Bible does not tell us that we are utterly free from his control. It tells us we're responsible, we're real, we make real decisions. And yet mysteriously at the same time, he is utterly sovereign. And that means we shouldn't ask, and Joseph shouldn't ask, questions like, is God at work in my life? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever, do you ever just look at your own life and think, is God at work? You, you can see him working in perhaps the missionaries you pray for out in Madagascar. Uh, you can see him working in your... Uh, your friend's life who's, I don't know, working full-time for a Christian charity. But is he really at work in my life? The answer, that, that's just the wrong question. You never ask yourself, is God at work in my life? You can ask yourself, how is God at work in my life? Because he is always at work. You never walk outside of his zone of control, if you like. You never, in that sense, walk outside of his plan for your life. You might well not understand his plan for your life. I'm not sure Joseph fully understands why he's sold to be a slave or in a pit or back in prison or falsely accused of adultery. You may not understand exactly what's going on, but something is going on. He is in control. And so if you're a Christian in particular, you need to learn, we need to learn how to look at the the world rightly, through the right kind of glasses, if you like. Uh, If if you're a Christian, you you should see your life and the world around differently to, to those who don't have faith in God. Because we should see it as, well, as God at work somehow. So remember, a couple of years ago, I read about this uh, incident in a church. Let me just read a little couple of sentences to you from a book uh, that's meant to teach us how to think clearly. It's not a Christian book. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, the author says this. At 7.15 on the 1st of March, 1950, the choir of Beatrice, Nebraska Church were meant to rehearse. Uh, but all of them were delayed. For one, their car didn't start. Uh, for the minister's wife, she hadn't or ironed her daughter's dress, so it was delayed. The pianist fell asleep over dinner. At 7.25, the church exploded with a gas leak. 
If they'd all turned up on time, they'd all have died. They were all late, so they're all saved. Now, how are we meant to think of that? Now, the author of this book says it's a complete false way of thinking to say that that is a miracle of God's providence. It's just a coincidence. What Genesis teaches us, and for that matter, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through to Revelation, is that was not a coincidence. That was an act of God's kindness. We're to read not just the Bible, but read our lives, read human history through God-centred glasses, if you like. We're to see his hand at work. And again, let me, let me emphasise, this is not a promise that he always saves church choirs from gas leaks. Okay? There are other stories, no doubt, where the choir turn up and the whole thing blows up. So this is not a promise of utter protection from disaster in life. Again, Joseph is in jail. But it is a call to see God at work in our lives. In the big things, who we marry, where we live, where we work, where we go to church, in the small things. You know, why am I in this traffic jam? It's not an accident. You were put there, perhaps to sanctify your patience. Who knows? The biggest things, the smallest things in our lives all come from God's hand. And knowing that he is a good God, therefore should change our perspective on the lows as well as the highs. Uh, John Newton, who wrote, wrote that, well, wrote Amazing Grace, a wonderful hymn, said this, everything is necessary that God sends and nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Now, let me say that again. That's such a helpful perspective, I think, on God's sovereignty, providence, if you like, over our lives. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. God is in control and ultimately he wants to bless his people. So every action in your life, whether it's a a pleasant feeling one or a very unpleasant one, ultimately is necessary. And if you're lacking anything that you want, don't panic, says Newton. God knows you don't really need it. If you did, he's powerful enough to have brought it into your life. God is in complete control of history. But I think we can go a little bit further in Genesis 40 in particular. I think Genesis 40 is telling us not just God is in control of history, but he's in control of history and therefore he'll keep his promise. Therefore he'll keep his promise. I wonder if you've noticed that in Joseph, dreams always come in twos. Remember Joseph had the two dreams, uh, one of him uh, uh, in the fields and the, 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 uh, the sheaves of corn bowing down to his and another of the planets, the stars and the planets, the sun, the moon and the planets bowing down to him. He had two dreams, both with the same meaning. He was going to be raised up and his brothers and his family were going to bow down before him. Uh, in a couple of chapters time, we'll see Pharaoh has two dreams. Uh, and here, the butler and the baker have, well, one dream each, but both making two dreams together. W- why? What's going on with these two dreams? Why are we told about the butler and the baker's dreams? Well, Joseph's dream at this stage doesn't look like it's being fulfilled, does it? Those two dreams about him being raised up, him being this great figure, and everyone sort of bowing before him, at the moment, looks like a joke. He's in prison. He might be the highest guy in prison, but that's still not that impressive, is it? To be top of the, to be the best prisoner. It's not exactly Joseph's dreams come true in a literal sense. And so I think what, what God does is send these two guys into his life who, if you like, have the same experience as him, but sped up. They too are given a little prophecy of what's going to happen. But in their case, it's just three days. Now, Joseph, in total, spends about 13 years in prison, if you do the maths. 
I won't take you through all the verses that you have to do the adding up, but about 13 years in prison. It's a long time to wait. And so God sends these two guys with two dreams, which are then proved to be true, as a little sped up witness to Joseph. Yes, I do follow through on my word, God is saying to Joseph. Look, see, I will act in line with my word. In that sense, if you like, he has the prophetic word made more sure, to quote from the book of 2 Peter. If you like, Joseph doesn't now just have God's word that came to him in the form of a dream. He also has God's actions in history marrying up with God's word. He's got two witnesses now to the truthfulness of God's word about his future. And again, as Christians, we have something similar. We've, we've been told time and time again in the New Testament that one day Jesus will be lifted up and all people will bow down before him. He's the ultimate Joseph, if you like. All creation will bow before him. Now that is a word, the word of God that has come to us, clearly. But we've also seen God keep lots of mini promises along the way about Jesus. The Old Testament is full of prophecies of Christ, about his birth. He'll be born of a virgin, he'll be born in Bethlehem, he'll be descended of David. About his death, he's going to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He'll be pierced even though in, in the days of those predictions, there was no such thing as crucifixion. People will gamble for his clothes. Not a bone of his body will be broken. And so on, we might, we might go. It's difficult actually to count them up. Uh, but at, at least 300 prophecies of Christ. It's very hard to put an exact number. At least 300 prophecies of Christ. And most of them now have come true because most of them were prophecies about his, his earthly life. So we don't just have God's word. We've got a, a witness, if you like, to God keeping his promise already. And it's extraordinary the way that the Old Testament paints uh, the life of Christ. If you've got children, you, you might, uh, they might have these little, I wonder if you children have got those dot to dot number books where you sort of trace the number around, you see, and it's like an outline. And at first it just looks like a load of numbers, but when you start putting the pen on and drawing around, suddenly it turns into like a butterfly or a horse or whatever the drawing is going to be. The Old Testament is like that. It's an outer sketch of Christ's life. And when Christ comes, he sketches it in and the whole thing comes to life. As an American, American mathematician, uh, Professor Peter Stoner, uh, he took just eight of these, take, took eight prophecies and tried to work out the odds of them coming true. Uh, the figure he came up to is one in 10 to the power of 21. Now that means nothing to me. It's a lot of noughts. And he obviously realised it meant nothing to most people. So he gave an illustration. Cover the entire earth with coins 120 feet high. Okay, whole earth, coins, 120 feet high. Colour one of them red, tie a blindfold around someone's face and ask them to pick out the red coin first time. One in 10 to the power of 21. That's what Professor Stoner at least reckoned the likelihood of these prophecies coming true by accident was. Now, I'm no mathematician. I certainly can't verify that. But it is extraordinary, is it not? We haven't just got predictions about Christ. We've now seen those predictions come true. And the reason is to give us more confidence in the predictions that have yet to come true. It's to make us more certain about the things that we don't yet see. We're called as Christians to live by faith, not by sight. And lots of the things that God has promised to you, you simply cannot see or feel or experience at the moment. And so they can start to seem just untrue. Does it not occasionally 
creep into your mind that the idea that one day okay, Christ is going to come down on the clouds of heaven with more angels than you can count. This great trumpet blast is going to sound across the universe and everyone will bow before him. Just that will just occasionally make you think, really? Do the doubts just not begin to nag? Uh, you read of the pictures of heaven that there's going to be a whole transformed, glorious world that you're going to be living in for eternity. Even the idea of eternity is hard to get your head around, isn't it? There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more upset, no more sin. It just doesn't feel real to us sometimes. Life feels real. Things we can see and touch and smell and... Okay, that's real. That's life. But all these predictions about the future, they can just seem a bit... Hey, floaty. Well, God gives us lots and lots and lots of fulfilled predictions to, to give us more certainty about the things that are to come. And ultimately, those are predictions of the future. I've said before that, that actually those dreams of Joseph, him raised up, everyone else bowing down, are pictures of Christ. Christ raised up, everyone else bowing down. But they're therefore pictures of you and me. We are in those dreams. We're not the big sheaf. We're not the one to whom the planets bow down. But we're represented by the little sheaves, the little planets. Yes, there are lots of predictions about Christ entering into glory. But for Christ to enter into glory, he has to have his people there too. Think about the pictures of Jesus. He's a king. Well, you can't be a king without a people. He's a, he's a groom, a husband. What does a husband have to have to be a husband? Children, what's the one thing you have to have to be a husband? Yeah, God has it. A wife, exactly. You can't be a husband without a wife, can you? If Christ is going to be a groom, a husband, he has to have a wife, which is a picture of the church. A head. What goes with a head? Abs. A body, exactly. You can't have Christ, the head, without us, the body. So these things are certain. We need not doubt them. One day you will enter a world of glory. One day all the stresses and anxiety and fears of this world will just melt away. You will live forever. You will never cease to exist. Jesus will not be alone. You will be there with him. And that leads us just to the final thought more briefly before we wrap up today. Yes, God is in control of history. He will keep his promise. But what is that promise? The promise, I think, here in, in Genesis 40 is that he will divide humanity, blessing some and judging others. He'll divide humanity, blessing some and judging others. Just think about the content of these dreams. What, what is, let me back up a step. Very often, if you're reading a passage of the Bible, one of the clues as to what's important in that passage is that the same words or themes get repeated over and over again. Okay, that's a clue. That's how, that's how you, if you're a, a, a writer, you kind of get a point across, isn't it? Just keep emphasising it. You know, what's the most important thing in uh, the value of a house? Location, location, location. Okay, saying location once gives you the same information, but saying it three times just emphasises that's the really important thing. Well, what's repeated so many times in Genesis 40? Nine times, we're told, about this third day. In both of the dreams, three branches, three baskets. Everything happens on the third day. Three days, three days, three days. And what is it that happens on the third day? Well, did you notice the phrase? Verse 13, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. 
Verse 19, in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head. Verse 20, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, coronation day, he made a feast and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker. The third day, third day, third day, third day is the day of lifting up. Now, is it just me or is that not meant to remind us of something? Over 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the Old Testament tells us that according to the scriptures of the Old Testament, Christ will die for our sins. He'll be raised again on the third day. Not just that he'll be raised again, he'll raise again on the third day. Somehow, even the Old Testament tells us Christ is going to be raised on the third day. I wonder if this is one of those, just little hints, little echoes. I'm not sure Joseph would have known it at the time. Even Moses, the human author of Genesis, might not have known it at the time. But the main author of Genesis did. The main author of Genesis is the Holy Spirit. The third day, time and time again in the Bible, is the day of being lifted up. Resurrection. In fact, we've already had it once in, in Genesis. Remember where we had it already? Resurrection in Genesis? Had it with Abraham and Isaac. Remember Abraham was told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. And Hebrews 11 says that uh, this was, because um, in the end Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac. Hebrews says this is like Abraham receiving him back from the dead or being raised again. And what day does that happen on? Yep, the third day. Very little happens in the Bible on the second day or the fourth day or the fifth day, third day. The third day is the day of lifting up, resurrection. And the day of resurrection, this is what I think Genesis 40 is so helpful for, is a day both of triumph and of tragedy. That's why the lifting up word is used of both the baker and the butler. The lifting up is good for one, but bad for the other. And that is true of the resurrection of Christ too. The resurrection of Christ, the lifting up of Christ on the third day is good news and bad news. It is good news, what's good news for Christ? the king. It's good news for those who are on his side, who put their trust in him, but it is bad news for anyone and anything that stands against him, because the raising up of Christ on the third day, to, to again be at the right hand of the father, a bit like the butler's the right hand of the king, it is the sign that Christ now rules the universe and will not be dethroned. So if we stand against him, we just are going to lose. So the third day is the day that Christ's enemies were defeated. It's the day death died because Christ triumphed. It's the day the devil was mortally wounded, although he's still thrashing around in his death throes. It's the day that sin was conquered. And it's also the day that is given to us as a sign that if we refuse to come to him and ask for his mercy, we are stood in rebellion against the king. It's the job of all Christians, preachers uh, or not, to be straight with the news that God gives us. Remember, Joseph doesn't soft pedal on the dream. He doesn't say to the uh, the butler, well, good news, you're going to be raised up. And when the baker comes with us, the one about the basket's being packed, he doesn't say, well, ooh, difficult to know. I mean, I don't want to, hmm, yeah, who knows? Let's see what happens. No, he's straight. You're facing judgment. That is the message of the Bible. The resurrection of Christ is a preaching to us that if we come to him, and if in fact we say to Christ what the thief on the cross said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's actually what Joseph says to the, the butler as well then Christ will forgive us and we will be one of those ones who are gathered with him into paradise. But it's also a reminder that if we don't, then we'll face him in judgment. Uh, he will come not to rescue us, but to punish us. So Genesis 40, if you're a Christian, it is meant to give you immense confidence, immense good news. 
It tells you your enemies are already defeated. That third day victory is done and dusted. Everything that stands against you, everything that could prevent you entering glory, everything that you're worried about, anxious about, everything that might happen to you between now and your death or Christ's return has been conquered. You feel weak, you feel anxious, and we do. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know our path home to heaven. But, but Genesis 40 says to us, you will get there. Not because you're powerful, but because Christ has already been raised up and he will not lose you. He has conquered all his enemies. Uh, what can separate you from the love of God? Trouble, famine, hardship, the sword, tribulation, nakedness, danger. No, says Paul. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is God's promise to you. So yes, there may be earthly troubles. You may still be in the pit for a while. Okay, we pray for each other that we get raised up on the short term. But ultimately, because Christ has been raised up, you too will be raised up. And nothing can stop that. God's word has come promising it. And God's son has come and lived it. And so your future is safe and secure. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that Christ was raised on the third day, that he has triumphed over everything that will stand against your people. Uh, we praise you that he is a conquering king, that death itself has died. And we pray that you would give us faith by the power of your spirit to trust that word of promise. In our anxieties, in our worries, in those times especially when we feel we're in the pit rather than on the mountaintops. Lift our eyes, we pray, to see the world of glory that awaits us and the indomitable power that is working to bring us there. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.